Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I'm Camille Weber. Uh, we are here at Linfield College with Bill Fuller, co-founder of Tualatin Vineyards, uh, and it is August 11, 2015. So my first question for you, Bill, is why wine? Well, it was kind of accidental in a way. It was uh, When I graduated from college in 1958, I was not certain about what I wanted to do, and so I decided to um, look into teaching even though I had a bachelor's degree in chemistry and completed a major in math and had a minor in physics I could have done a lot of different things and um, so anyway so I went to work at as a school teacher in Cloverdale in Northern California well the uh, president of the school board was the office manager at an Italian Swiss colony winery in Asti just four miles south of Cloverdale and he told the winemaker that they had hired a person with a degree in chemistry and the winemaker had always told him he was always short of, of part-time help in the lab. So they called me and I went down and was uh, interviewed and they hired me to uh, work uh, during the harvest of 1958. So that was really my first job in the wine industry and I worked that harvest evenings and weekends uh, and then when the school year ended, uh, I enjoyed teaching, but I didn't care for the position I was in. And I really financially couldn't move on to another place and the way the school uh, salaries were structured. So anyway, <clears throat> so I went down to the winery and said that I'm looking for a job. And they said, well, you know, we have an opening but uh, you don't quite qualify for what we've put in the requirements of the job, but we know you, we know your work ethic and whatnot, you're hired. So I, that was my intro to the wine industry. So we got started that way and it just went from there. So how did you make the transition from California, doing winemaking in California and then eventually moving to Oregon? Well. I, uh, the job at Italian Swiss was a very difficult one for me because I was supervising bottling operation at night and uh, I think they uh, specifically hire hardened criminals to work the night shift because I was constantly having problems with uh, things like the night watchman would come and say, Bill, you've got to go into the parking lot. Well, why do I have to go in the parking lot? Well, you've got to go in the parking lot because you need to look. So I go in the parking lot and here's a forklift driver loading his trunk of his car with cases of wine. He drove them from the warehouse out there. Oh you know? And it was just a lot of stuff like that. And, and I, you know, I'm only 21 years old, so I, you know, how do I deal with it all? I wasn't a hardened worker you know, myself. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I thought, well, I want to try something else. So I went to work for Crown Cork and Seal, and they um, produced supply things like cans and crowns and screw caps that went to the beverage industry. 
So I still had a connection with wine and beer and whatnot. Well, the engineer there was a wine nut and he kept after me, get back in the industry, get back in the industry, you know. So then I decided, okay, I, I, I did like the wine industry part. So I went back to my boss at a time, Swiss Colony, and said, you know, I'd like to get back in the wine situation. I said, uh, what would you do if you were me? And uh, so he said, well, you can do one of three things. He said, I can hire you back, which I'd be really happy to do. Uh, you could befriend somebody in the wine industry and shadow them on weekends and stuff, learn from them. Or you could go back to school and get a degree. And I said, well, if you were me, what would you do? And he says, go back to school and get a degree. So that's what I did. I went in 1960, uh, let's see what year, that was 62. I went back to school at Davis and was there for two years. And, uh, and at that time, um, there were two people, two other students there that came to Oregon, uh, Dave Lett and Chuck Corey, and I knew them long before anybody did here. Um, and um, they uh, talked about it a lot and whatnot. And, and so I had that interest kind of in the back of my mind. And, and then they left the school uh, and uh, took off and went to Europe and did some other things. And, and um, so then um, I finished after two years in my thesis wasn't accepted and so I had to work on it some more but I needed to get back to a job and so I was hired by Louis Martini to uh, go to work for them and I was the first non-family member that they'd ever hired in the winemaking part and so um, I went there in uh, 64 well, then in the spring of 65, I got my thesis squared away and accepted. And so I get, got my master's degree in 1965. And so during that 10 year period, uh, I was there at Louis Martini. Um, a lot of people passed my way. Um, sort of the guru of the Western world of wine was Dr. Maynard Amarine at Davis. and. Uh, he had kind of a list of favorite people, and I was one of his favorite people, which helps. Um, and um, that every time somebody would come by and say they're looking to get in the wine business, he had this list, and he would just give these names to these people, and they would go talk to them. So I got all kinds of people passing by and um, looked at uh, had a chance then because of that to look at a lot of properties myself and uh, and then so one place that really intrigued me was uh, Anderson Valley and in, uh, in Mendocino County and near the Boonville area and um, so there was this couple and they actually bought based on my recommendation there and um, so it kind of kept a uh, touch with them and what was going on. And then Bill Malkmus, who eventually I partnered with, he was one person that came off the list too. And he came to talk with me. And 
and we talked. And that went on for a year and a half or so. And then um, he had decided that he was going to get serious about it and, and actually approached me to sort of partner with him and whatnot. And so we went and looked in Anderson Valley because I was pretty high on it um, at that time. And so the place that Navarro Vineyards is at, we looked at and we decided that we wanted to buy it. But my wife refused to move there. And so that kind of killed that project, you know. But anyway, you know, life goes on. But um, so we um, then walked away from that one. And then in the meantime, um, some people from Oregon had come down and met with me. Uh, Dick Erath was one that uh, he wasn't in the wine business yet. He was working uh, mm -hmm. uh, Tektronics at that time. In and, Oakland, correct? Yeah. And so he came down and then the Roseburg group had kind of, they were a little more organized mm -hmm. and a busload of them came down and I took them on some tours and, and whatnot. And uh, so anyway, so then when Bill Malkmus and I began to look around, we looked down south of San Francisco where Ridge is and some mm -hmm. of the other wineries down there. We looked in the Sierra foothills. Uh, we looked in eastern Washington and we looked at Oregon property. Well, in the meantime, I was hired as a consultant for a possible wine project in Oregon. And this would have been 1970. And so I'd made a couple of trips up here looking at properties uh, with this group. And, uh, and then I, I made a couple of recommendations. In fact, one of the places I recommended to them is now uh, where Bethel Heights is and um, that property was for sale at that time. And um, so anyway, so um, then in 1972, um, at the harvest time, one of the grape growers that delivered grapes to us at Martini said that he was, after harvest, he was coming to see his brother-in-law who lives in Scapoose. And um, so there was an ad in Wines and Vines uh, magazine that said, grape land for sale in Oregon. And I'd looked at that ad carefully and called the people, talked to them. So then I asked this grower, I said, I don't know how, I don't know where Forest Grove is, I don't know where Scapoose is, but maybe they're not too far apart. And you could go and look at this piece of property and see what you think. Well, it turns out, you know, Scapoose isn't that far from Forest Grove. So anyway, so uh, he went and looked. And when he came back after visiting with his brother-in-law, he came and saw me right away. And he says, Bill, he said, I think that's a fantastic spot. He said, I think it's really good. Yeah. So then I talked to Malcolmus about it. And he then came up here and met with the people to talk about costs and, you know, the money part of it, because that was his role in this whole thing. And uh, so then November of that year, at Thanksgiving time, I came up. So everybody had looked at it before I had, but then, and I had to live there, you know, so I needed to go look. So anyway, so I went up and looked and, and uh, decided that was fine. And so then in the spring of 73, I 
quit Martini in April, and I came up and I lived with Chuck Corey, and just outside of Forest Grove where David Hill is, and uh, I stayed with them, and worked on problems at the property, getting it ready and and whatnot. The house had been abandoned and needed a lot of work, and and we had to prepare the land to plant, had to find plants. There were not a lot of plants available in those days. Um, so anyway, so then in uh, we got we planted in May, uh, and I waited till my children had finished school that school year in, in uh, Santa Elena, and so they came up on the over Fourth of July weekend, moved up to the property at Forest Grove, and so that's in '73 is when that started, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> so you talk a lot about um, looking at different locations to set up your to set up the site. What exactly are you looking for when you're looking at these areas? Well, you know that first of all, the area is unknown to me initially, and so you have to kind of get up to speed with the area. And fortunately, this project in 1970 this other potential wine project um, gave me that opportunity because one of the persons that I went around with was an old time farmer in the Willamette Valley. So I learned a lot about what to look for in climate and, and uh, slope and, and the differences in soils. Mm -hmm. You know, if you draw a line from Mount Hood straight west, the soils north of that line are different than the soils south of that line. Right. And see, all the Dundee Hills and whatnot have red soil, and, and we didn't have red soil. You know, then we had basalt and, and sand and whatnot. And this is why phylloxera never was a serious problem in our vineyard like it was in a lot of the Dundee Hills vineyards because of the clay. We didn't have clay, and we had sand. And our soil was 25% sand. And so anyway, so I learned that the warmest place on the slope is the interface with the valley. And as you go up, it just keeps getting cooler and cooler. Uh, and uh, so I felt I wanted something that was low on the hills, not high. Um, and so the bottom of our vineyard there at Tualatin was 175 feet elevation. and the top of the vineyard was 450 feet. And so that made a nice long gentle slope and was south facing, breaking west. So, you know, it was, everything was just uh, perfect. And uh, that's one of the best ripening sites. Now, if the whole area ripens, everybody ripens. But if you get the areas, the, the years where ripening is marginal, yeah, that vineyard will shine because it'll ripen them when others won't because of the, the air and the, and it's in a cul-de-sac of hills that go make a u-shape and so the the warm air collects in there and so we had uh, a, a much better shot at getting ripe in in the bad years it's like the local farmers up there you know they sort of look down their nose at grapes and I said, what are you going to do in the year of the green tomato? And I said, well, I guess we pick green grapes. Yeah, I, it, you know, how can you react to that? Yeah. But uh, 
the one thing that was kind of interesting, exciting, you know, if you went in the Napa Valley and you were looking at a site to plant a vineyard, you would talk to people around you, you know, what kind of grapes do well here and what do there. Well, you know, the neighbors. Up there, we were the neighbors. And so we did the planting. And, 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 and you learn a lot when you do these things. It's, it, one of the grape varieties that I planted was Flora. Flora is a cross between Simeon and Gewurztraminer that was developed at UC Davis. In, um, in the Napa Valley was one of the earliest ripening grapes. At Martini, there was a vineyard of it back behind the winery toward the river, and it was always one of the first picked vineyards. So I thought, oh, early ripening grape, cool climate in Oregon, good choice. It was the last grape we picked, and it was barely ripe. And <laughs> so, you know, you don't know. But it has to do with, the, we learned with time, the, the heat profile. When does the heat come? Well, the heat in the, in the Napa Valley, is, it comes at the end of ripening. It comes in September and October. Our heat comes in July and August. It doesn't come in September and October. So that heat profile has more of an impact on the whole thing. And you know, at Davis, they developed the degree day system. You know, I, I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's a method where you look at the average temperature through the growing season and you come up with degree days. And so the degree days, like in Burgundy, are 23, 2400 degree days. Uh, forest groves, about uh, 2300. Um, the uh, Geisenheim is about 1800, and we know grapes will ripen at Geisenheim, but it's the north latitude in that case. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that um, Dr. Winkler, who was the guru of the Western world in grape growing, and um, he, uh, I spent some time with him when I was a graduate student, and uh, he was emeritus at that time. And he told me, he said, you know, Bill, he said, if he was, the, he did the degree day system. It's his system. And um, he said, if he was to do it all over again, he would only look at the last six weeks before harvest, which would fit this concept with the flora that we had, you know, because mm -hmm. if you would have looked at the last six weeks before harvest, you, you, he's recognizing how critical that is to finishing the grapes up, yeah. and uh, uh, anyway, kind of rambling. <laughs> <laughs> it is totally fine. Um, a few moments ago, you mentioned Charles Corey and David Lett. Um, I was wondering if there are any other names that, um, or any other people that you had relationships with, and maybe expand on your relationships with Charles Corey and David Lett. Well, as, as I assume at this point in your interviews and whatnot, you've gotten the controversy that existed between them and, and uh, sort of their opinions of each other and so on and so forth. That, um, well, of course, when I arrived here, uh, their differences were sort of at their peak, you might say. You know? And um, 
let me just back up just a second. Um, Dave Lett's cuttings for his Chardonnay were made in my backyard in Santa Elena. That he got those out of the drink, got those the the, the you know the the plant material out of the Draper uh, vineyard and brought them down to where my house was. And him and my first wife sat in the backyard and made all the cuttings for the Chardonnay, the first ones that he brought. Then, um, but probably the big difference between the two, and this might be uh, somewhat controversial and maybe come back and bite me in the butt or something, but uh, that the difference between the two was significant. And first of all, Dave Lett was very slick, very smooth, you know, everybody liked him, the public. Some industry people didn't have the same feelings. Um, the Chuck Corey was was very rough on the edges. You know, he could offend very fast. But the significant difference that impacts the industry, and a lot of people, I don't know if they agree with this necessarily or whatnot, but I feel very strongly about it. Chuck Corey wanted to create an industry. Dave Lett wanted to create Dave Lett. And, and that's a fundamental difference between, and, and, and so, uh, you know, Dave Lett was very busy, busy cultivating his project and his winemaking and so on and so forth, you know. And he did that initially by being a book salesman at all the universities. And you know, the universities are very susceptible to things like wine and whatnot. And so he was, was very slick about selling books to them and wine at the same time, or the concepts. Chuck Corey was interested in getting more acreage of vineyard planted because he felt that there, you needed a critical mass to create an industry. Yeah, and and so, and unfortunately, some of his approaches were not very good, and they didn't do as well as you know one would have liked them to do. Uh, then my partner would have killed him about half a dozen times because we bought grapes plants from him, yeah. and uh, and you know Dick Erath was a partner with Chuck in that grape nursery business that they started. And, and finally, Chuck's approach to things and one that caused their separation to occur. And uh, that uh, the, um, but a funny thing, an incident that I remember happening was there's a swimming hole out at Balm Grove, which is near Gales Creek, just over the hill from where Tualatin is. And we would take the kids over there and go swimming and whatnot a lot of times. And so surely Corey was, was one to go around and sweep up all the messes that Chuck made, you know. And she was, you know, let's have harmony here and whatnot. And so she said, let's all meet over, because we're at a point that things were really tough. So, so he, she said, let's all meet at... Uh, Palm Grove, and, and have a picnic and potluck and whatnot. Okay. 
students would go over there. Well, Bill Malkmus, my partner, was up from San Francisco where he lived. And um, that uh, he had a friend uh, with him, and the friend brought a dog. And so this beautiful black lab, and, and so we were there, and, and Chuck typically was always late to these things. Yeah. Shirley was there, and then her children, and, and uh, all of us. And so this dog was retrieving everything you could throw out on the pond. Chuck arrives, you know. And uh, so he sees this retrieving going on, so he takes his hat off and throws it out on the lake. The dog refused to go get it, <laughs> you know, and so this is kind of Chuck. <laughs> you know? But anyway, uh, it's the way things happen. <laughs> so, being the third um, establishment to open in Washington County, um, were there any was there any camaraderie between uh, you and the other fellow winemakers? In the well. Area? Uh, yeah, there was, and uh, like uh, Dick and I shared equipment, you know, because you know a lot of the equipment, like labeling wine bottles and you know hand doing these jobs, you, 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 that piece of equipment sits there for ten months, and you use it for two weeks or something, and so uh, we would buy one together, and then just work our schedules out so that. You know, Dick had it when he needed it, and we had it when we needed it, and and we did a number of things that way. Um, and then there were some things that we did in our vineyard that I really brought up from California, and uh, and a lot of people in the industry started using them. Was you know now you see those grow tubes in the vineyard, newly planted vineyard. Well, we were the first to do anything like that, and we and I went up to Longview and bought misprinted uh, gallon milk cartons, and we put milk cartons out at every place, and we were the you know the first one to do that, and and the grow tubes are more effective because of the height of them and whatnot, and uh, but we uh, uh, did that. Um, we were the first vineyard to have a drip irrigation system in it. Um, we had a number of, of uh, things. We were the first winery to have uh, uh, regular wine tasting hours. No one else had it. Other people had tasting rooms, but no. And then the um, was my wife and myself and, and the Blossers, we created and uh, Jack Myers, who has passed away, unfortunately. But um, yeah, do you know the, there was a discovery brochure called Discover Oregon Wines? Mm -hmm. We did the first one, and there were five wineries in it. And Lett was pissed because what happened was we required you to have a tasting room hours to be in it. There was no point in sending people there if you're not open. Right. You know? Well. He recognized the importance of that as a directory of first really sort of directory of Oregon wineries, but he didn't want to have a tasting room. And so this caused a, a riff a, a bit, you know. Um, but 
it's interesting that then one of our members at that time, and I can't think of the guy's name now. He worked for uh, um, Boys of Cascade, and he got Boys of Cascade to donate all the paper for that first project because we we had no money and we're trying to do these things on the you know beg borrow and steal and uh, so uh, he actually got them and then and we found Jack Myers who was a graphic arts specialist at the uh, Oregon Art School and he uh, um, got a lot of donated stuff for layout and design and and uh, the uh, uh, there was a photographer in Vancouver who had a lot of pictures of the industry and so we used his pictures and then we lost all those. He was the photographer that was killed on the volcano exploded in, uh, you know, St. Helen. And uh, so we lost all the pictures we had initially. But then, anyway, so that was the first brochure and as I recall there were five wineries in it. And, um, uh, Marge Volstek uh, worked on that, and so did uh, uh, Schaefer. What was her first name? Da, 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 Linda Schaefer. And, um, and it was actually kind of the Washington County gals, we called it, that uh, really put the first uh, brochure together. Yeah. But, you know, there was a lot of cooperation. The, the thing that um, um, ultimately probably uh, caused uh, more problems, uh, you know, in terms of not just, uh, I won't say not getting along, but just problems, um, was the fact that the mass occurred here in Yamhill County. Right. Yeah, and you can understand why. 99W comes right through here, brings all the people, you know, to get to Tualatin, you had to want to go. You weren't going to drive past it. And and so that created uh, some uh, difficulties. Then, then the uh, industry people here used that mass, you know, to uh, promote themselves very well. You know. We made some efforts at promotions, but it just uh, never came off that well because of the location primarily. You know, you could spend three or four hours here and visit as many wineries as you wanted almost, you know. And in our area, it took three or four hours to get around the whole area to see only two or three wineries. Yeah, and so you, you saw this uh, sort of thing uh, happening. But, but I can't say that there was any uh, serious rifts. You know, and so then some people on the border, like Ponzi and Elk Cove, you know, they had a tendency to associate with the Yamhill people because they were closer than anyone else in Washington County, even though the two of them are in Washington County, and and uh, and, and that's understandable. You know, I can see that. You know, I might do the same myself if I was in that position. Yeah, but um, and. But it was exciting times, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so my final question for you before we take our little break and then we'll have Rich come in and ask a few questions um, is I want to hear more about the differences and maybe similarities between working in California versus Oregon. 
Well, it's they're so different. They're they're like two different worlds because you know here we were establishing an industry in right. effect, and then the, the, heaven knows I spent thousands of hours working on that, and you know I did the lobbying for the wine growers in the early days because we couldn't afford one. Everybody kind of pitched in, but but I sort of had the brunt of it. Um, you know, Al Simon and Blosser, and uh, you know, they were particularly helpful. Uh, that um, the uh, the the thing is that you're so busy trying to start a business and trying to get an industry going and be successful. You know, and what determines that success? Uh, and most of us were undercapitalized. There was really uh, no one had a lot of money. Where in California, you had the opposite of all those things. You know, you had a lot of people coming. And when I started the industry in California, it hadn't wasn't attracting big amounts of money like it was when I left. You know, that uh, in the '60s it just expanded and exploded. You know, by the end of the '60s, and. And the, the other thing, here we were trying to establish a business. There, all of those, not all, but most of the new wineries, these people weren't in the wine business. They were buying a lifestyle. They could get on the social pages of the Chronicle, they could be in Sunset Magazine, blah, 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 you know. So they brought money from somewhere else that they made, and, and uh, that and, and so it, they weren't creating what one would call a legitimate business. They were creating their lifestyle. Yeah. And we had this saying about to make a small fortune in the wine industry, you start with a bigger one. And, and um, that, um, and so the parameters of that whole thing there was, was so foreign to the parameters that were here that it's very difficult to think. Um, the and the winemaking here was not all that easy either because uh, you know the, the impression people get at the industry today is that, that that you know all these places make great Pinot Noir you know well they don't make great Pinot Noir you know some sites are going to make better Pinot Noir than other sites let's face it yeah. and. Those kinds of things hadn't been established when we started, and um, it's beginning to even still uh, not showing every place like they possibly could be. I remember the Northwest Enological Society started in Seattle in 1976, I believe it was, um, and I was the Oregon representative to uh, the, them. So they did. They they started with a big program event at Seattle Center. You know where the Space Needle is, and so I was in charge of the program. So I got Andre Chelichev, who was America's big guru winemaker, and I got Leon Adams, author books and whatnot, and I got Chaz Nagel, who uh, was in the dairy department at Washington State at Pullman, 
but he also did wine things. And he grew up in St. Helena, and I had known him for a long time. So I got him, and there was myself, the four of us on a panel. And I had found six wines for the audience to taste, and we would taste with the audience, talk about the wines. Well, the sad part was finding six really good wines in the Northwest. And the, and the thing that even made it worse was I made a few of them, you know? But, uh, uh, and, and so, you know, it was, was not always easy, but, uh, uh, but you know, that, I think back, you know, and I feel my two biggest contributions to the industry here one publicly impacted and the other one internally impacted. The publicly impacted in thing was primarily Bill Blosser and I um, and my ex-wife uh, gave us some support for paperwork and whatnot, getting the blue signs, the directional signs. And um, I made a trip to uh, Washington, D.C. to testify to a Senate subcommittee on that. And because, see, all of these roads have federal money in them. And if there's any federal money in the highway, the, the feds control the signs and whatnot go on them. So, um, so I went back to testify at the Senate subcommittee. And the senator, and I don't remember his name now, uh, from Vermont, his statement to me was that we don't have a problem in Vermont. Why do you have a problem in Oregon? He didn't like my answer. I said, you, and I pointed at him. I was very emphatic. You got an exemption from the rules for your state. So you don't have a problem. We don't have the same exemption. So we have a problem. Yeah. He didn't say another word the rest of the whole uh, hearing, yeah. And uh, it was, uh, then the other thing I feel that was important for the industry um, is, you know, we had two organizations. We had the Wine Growers Council of Oregon here in the Willamette Valley. And in Roseburg, you had the Oregon Wine Growers Association. Their kind of their direction and the way they got started was very social. Uh, Paul Bielan and, uh, was uh, sort of the, the pusher of that group, and he uh, got them started with Summers. And, but they began to get some people more interested in more technical kind of things, and the group here was almost purely technical. There was no public things particularly. And uh, so it became apparent we needed to do some legislative things because we were running to some rules that were problems in terms like having a second tasting room. We couldn't have a second tasting room. And um, so Reese was president that year. We had a big meeting at the Swept Wing in uh, Albany, right at the end of the airport there. And we had the Roseburg people were there and all of us were there. And Blosser and I decided that we wanted to manipulate this meeting 
so that we could get two organizations into one organization. Because Markley, who was a senator from Roseburg, he said that I'll support your legislative activities, but I'll only do it if you have one organization. I don't want two organizations saying they represent the wine industry. I want one. So that was our impetus to put it together. So we did. And the two people that were really getting to uh, want to get something better was Scott Henry and Werner Anderson. And Anderson was a dentist with a vineyard, and he was also in the state house from Roseburg area. So um, we uh, talked with them, and they agreed that they would convince their people to merge with ours and we'll, but we wanted their name because we felt that wine growers council of oregon was a much better name than you know, the one that we had but anyway so that happened at the swept wing industry-wise so then the next year i was president i was president three times really through the years the the next time i was president i had a goal one to create the wine board, to have a public relations firm represent us, to have an office. We didn't have an office. Here, now we're, we're talking early 80s and we have no mailing address. For, well, we had a mailing address. We had a, uh, one of these mail places, you know, that you can collect your mail at. That's all we had. And, and we wanted a lobbyist. So we met the state owns a kind of like a convention center at Silver Falls, and we met there, and we got everybody together and hammered out what we were going to do, and then that uh, we created the Wine Advisory Board concept that day. Uh, we hired Bill Nelson to be our lobbyist. Um, we hired Fred Delkin to be our PR firm and use his office as our mailing address and office so we could get people, so we could respond to people that wanted to find out things about the industry. Mail them a brochure, you know, whatever. Well, Fred's office did that, you know. And that, uh, you know, you look back on things you win and things you lose. Well, I did lose one there. and. Then I felt it was big. Others didn't agree. But anyway, as Adelsheim was insistent that the monies that we collect for the Wine Advisory Board that would go half for research and half for marketing. Well, I wanted more money for marketing and less for research. And uh, so finally, we hammered out this this thing that um, a fourth could go to marketing and a fourth could go to research and the half could move either direction depending upon you know, what the pressures were of the time. And uh, so then we decided to have a vote and uh, Adelsheim sent a letter out to the industry, come and open this. 
encouraging them to go for this particular concept. Yeah. So I sent Alzheimer a note. I said, you know, Dave, I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you in any kind of verbal discussion you want. But I said, I can't beat your pen. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, well, so anyway, it happened what happened to him. But Nelson was very good. He, uh, uh, he created the, the legislation for the two, and, and he separated the money part from the creation of the Wine Advisory Board. So that if for some reason, and we've had to fight it off a couple of times, that people objected to the tax for the board and say they got that altered, they couldn't alter the board because they weren't the same piece of legislation in the statute. So when, and I thought that was one of the most clever things that, that uh, happened, you know, when Nelson uh, spearheaded that one. Yeah, but but I think those two things were probably the the most important things. I did a lot of other things, but those two, I thought, were critical to the future of the industry. And that was my whole goal was to create an industry. I remember um, we got in a long discussion about the allocation of this marketing money. So then I got on the board and I was in charge of marketing for the wine board for a long time and uh, the uh, and, and so these people would come out of the woodwork about you know objecting to spending money out of state and my whole philosophy was the future of our industry would lie in our ability to sell the wine away from Oregon because you know Oregon has a pretty uh, substantial per capita consumption of wine, but there are not many capitas, and so therefore it's limited. And that uh, you had um, the the pie is only so big, and the more people that come on stream that want a piece of it, it it impacts all the other pieces. And so I always would say, think of every case of wine I sell out there is one case less that you have to compete against here. Yeah. And, and that was my position through all that time. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, that it reflects some today. The industry is doing much better in terms of sales away. You know? And uh, that, uh, so I feel good about those things. Well, perfect. Well, that concludes the first half of the interview. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bill Fowler on August 11, 2015, doing the second part of our interview. Uh, and the first thing I want to start with was a couple of follow-up questions to Camille's uh, questions from the first half that came up while I was listening to you. So I'm curious about when you started in Washington County and you were one of the very first and wine was foreign to the area, basically, that for the, for the locals, what was the reaction like from other farmers or from just the people around the area to the kind of growing wine industry in the 70s? Well, um, it, it, it was sort of, of um, shall we say, different levels of curiosity as much as anything else. You know, the farmers were kind of curious. They watched how we planted and prepared the ground. And, and um, then you had uh, 
uh, customer type people, you know, just wine drinkers. Um, they saw, there was a little blurb in the Oregonian that somebody was planting a vineyard out in Forest Grove area. And um, we would get some people off that little article mm -hmm. that they were kind of wine groupies, you might say. And then, uh, so, oh, a vineyard out there, let's go take a look and see what's happening. And out of one of those people, interesting thing happened, uh, one of our best friends was created. Uh, there was uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Bacon. Uh, he was a retired professor at the medical school at OHSU. Mm -hmm. And uh, he saw the blurb, but he was kind of a longtime wine collector and, and wine aficionado. And so he came out one day, you know, and he hemmed and hawed and walked around, and, you know, as we say, kicked the tires. And um, so then, um, as time went along and we got a tasting room going, and him and his wife would come out, and then pretty soon it was, gee, Bill, you know, you guys work really hard here. You're running around. We could help in your tasting room sometimes, you know. And then Bruce and he's one of our tasting room employees, you know. But that all evolved out of this little article in the Oregonian about a vineyard being planted in Forest Grove. Uh, but um, yeah, because there wasn't much, you know. You had a little bit of vineyard down here, you know. You had Latin Erath and a couple of others, Marsh, you know, people mm -hmm. that had some small plantings, but many of those were tied to Erath. You know, he was really, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Lett and, and uh, Corey, but Erath was an interesting person too. He, uh, we used to call him our big teddy bear, you know, that uh, he uh, was a tremendous support for the industry. Yeah. But he was not a boat rocker, you know, he wasn't go rattle a cage. You know, then where I didn't mind going rattling a cage, but that wasn't his style. And, and as a result, he was a tremendous friend to have in the sense that if you wanted reinforcement of some project you were working on and he believed in it, go get him, you know. And, uh, and, and he was really uh, very good, uh, I have to say. That, uh, and, and that, uh, so, you know, the planting the first vineyard, as I mentioned earlier, the guy came and asked about the green tomato, year of the green tomato. This particular area that we're in um, has changed in the last uh, 20 years from uh, a lot of orchards, there were peach orchards, mm -hmm. there was uh, a lot of filberts, mm -hmm. and now it's the nursery interests have bought up quite a bit of the land in that general area, and it's much more nursery oriented than it used to be. In fact, one of the big uh, peach places, this guy had a reputation for peaches, and I remember the first peach season that I was uh, there. Um, was that um, he uh, would get, he would put announce at the opening, you know, on such and such a date, mm -hmm. and cars would be lined up down the road to get in there to wow. get their peaches, you know. But uh, now that's all big nursery uh, situation, you know. But um, the old timers told me that 
um, the filberts were a prophet even during prohibition and and depression hmm. you know that period of time uh, that uh, the filberts paid the taxes a lot of property they said and which was kind of interesting yes. and there were a lot of filberts in the area where we were uh, at the time what would you say the um sort of wine education level was like in Oregon when you got here. How much educating did you have to do of your, your consumers? A lot. You can't imagine how many luncheon professional clubs type thing that I gave. I gave hundreds of talks and uh, that um, did, did a lot of wine tastings with the talks in many cases. And I remember one incident that I just uh, can't forget this. There was a, a group of, they were like computerized accountants. I forget the name of their organization. Well, they had a rule that you could have entertainment presentation, but you also had some kind of professional pr presentation. That was a requirement of their meetings. Mm -hmm. So obviously I'm not the professional uplifting presentation <laughs> so anyway so what I did was I did a little wine tasting at the beginning then they had dinner then they were gonna have a talk and then I was gonna follow up a little wine more wine story so this guy sitting next to me he, he can hardly get his fork in his mouth it's like this and I said uh, what's the matter uh, you don't speak to many groups do you he said, well, I speak to groups. I said, no, uh-huh. I said, you seem a little nervous. And he said, well, you know that uh, this group's been drinking. And I looked at him and I said, you know, every group I speak to has been drinking. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but uh, a lot of time was spent educating. Yeah. We uh, used to, you know, talk about uh, uh, Chuck Corey is we met in those early days in the early 70s uh, at the Tiger fire station they had a meeting room on the side there and uh, we would meet there and and Chuck was uh, such an arrogance you know he he would lie on a table you know and start telling people the way it was you know that <laughs> yeah, and and, and Nothing embarrasses my uh, intellect more than somebody to talk, you know, down at me from a reclining position. <laughs> you know, you, you get ticked. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but anyway, that was Chuck. You know? But um, you know, he, he had a good story. He planted, you know, had a little vineyard planting business and did plant a lot of vineyards. Did that, that have you uh, interviewed uh, uh, Trenhill? Hmm. Uh, well, he planted the largest vineyard in Yamhill County, the first one. Uh, do you know Highland Vineyards? Well, the four guys that owned Highland, he was their vineyard manager, and he planted their vineyard. What's his first name? Yeah. Trenhill was his last name, his first name. 
you ask difficult questions. <laughs> Let's see. Let me. Maybe it'll come to me. No worries. But yeah. um, the because uh, he can really talk about establishing vineyards in Yamhill County because he he did it when there was no help. I mean, he was Jack. That was his name was Jack. And the four guys, I think that only. The last I heard, there were only two of them maybe still alive. I don't know if you've interviewed any of them. I think so. Uh, who owns it now? Dobbs? No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's right. Yeah. But um, I made the first wine from that vineyard. The very first grapes that came out of there, they brought them over because I knew the four guys that started it and was kind of in touch with them when they were getting started. Uh, one of them was a forester with the U.S. Forest Service. One was a builder. One was a uh, ophthalmologist, and the other was just the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have no description. <laughs> yeah. So, was there a point at which you felt that your uh, consumers were more were finally to the point where they were educated enough that you or, or was it a, a kind of a lifelong goal of educating well I think I had a personal general lifetime goal of education I still do it last Sunday some old customers called you know we're gonna pour your wine from Willamette and uh, any chance you come by and tell us about it you know so if I'm not, if I don't have something that I'm specifically doing, because there's nothing to gain by it, I could say I'm no just as easily, mm -hmm. but that's just not me. Ticks my wife off occasionally, <laughs> but they uh, that uh, yeah. oh yeah, I can do it you know, sort of thing. I enjoy it. Uh, it's my life, you know. It, it's like you know, I was retired for ten years, and then Willamette comes along and wants to know would I make wine again. And, you know, you don't do something as long as I did it, and as intensely as I did it, without missing it when it's gone. You know, it just leaves a big hole right there. And, and, uh, and so it's good for an old guy's ego, you know, to get called back. So tell us a little bit about that. Talk about the, the kind of evolution of Tualatin, and then how it, got, how it became part of Willamette Valley. Well, the... Um, we were really successful. There's, you know, it wasn't a lack of success. Uh, in fact, what's interesting, there's all this talk about Pinot Noir in Oregon and whatnot. The first wine in the Wine Spectator Top 100 Wines was my Chardonnay. What year was yeah. that? Uh, 90, I guess. It was 89 Chardonnay, so I think it was 90. But, um, you know, then, so there was a bunch of garbage in the Spectator, I don't know, two or three years ago about Oregon Chardonnay. So I sent an email to Harvey Steinman, you know, the publisher, and uh, I said, uh, Harvey, I said, maybe you've forgotten that uh, the first Oregon wine in your top 100 for the year was uh, my uh, Chardonnay. You know? And he sends back, he says, no, Bill, we haven't forgotten. In fact, he said it was your wines that really brought us to Oregon the first time, yeah. 
but um, the um, uh, I, I just chuckle at that when people talk about Pinot Noir. So I would say probably the two things that were the kind of the demise of Tualatin, if there is such a thing, as one, Malcolmus lived too far away. You know, he saw his friends, you know, it, I mean, he was on a different social economic level than I was you know, mm -hmm. and my wife. Uh, and the, um, so he didn't enjoy the, the ego massaging that the winery provided his friends that had investments in wineries. You know, like I said, these people buy lifestyles in these mm -hmm. wineries. And so he never experienced that. And I, then uh, heaven knows I got plenty of it, you know, and that uh, the, uh, it, it, you know, it was almost, I could hardly walk a street in Portland where a lot of people were, there wouldn't be somebody that didn't recognize me. They'd been to the winery or I'd given one of these 10 million talks of that gave, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, those kinds of things. You just see the people. And uh, then that was, was an issue. And then, then unfortunately, I, uh, my wife and I got a divorce about the same time that all this happened. And, and it was a detraction from the process, mm -hmm. and it was too bad. Um, the, uh, the, uh, marketplace wasn't real as conducive to selling wineries as it is or became later you know so we didn't do as well financially as we probably should have or, or could have but um but, but we had a great vineyard um, one of the low points of the history of Tualatin was the vineyard foreman the person who planted the vineyard basically I mean, I planted the first part plantings because we didn't hire anyone. Mm -hmm. Then about maybe two or three years after the first plantings, we decided we needed a vineyard person manager. Mm -hmm. So we hired a fellow, uh, David Foster. He was a Fresno State graduate. Um, he uh, uh, loved the vineyard and he planted it and it was great looking vineyard fabulous um, he committed suicide in the uh, the 90s I don't remember what year but it was it was a really sad moment in my life you know and because uh, he was a wonderful man and we were close mm -hmm. and I was gone uh, I'd gone to Europe for a couple of weeks and uh, did it while I was gone. And so I said something to my daughter about it, who uh, is a social psychologist. She said, well, of course he would do it when you were gone, because said, she said, you would have recognized that it was happening and would have done something about it, and he didn't want somebody to do that. You know? It's a very jealous act, you know. and and, and and selfish. Yeah. Anyway, but um, we had great success at Tualatin. I'm the only winemaker in the history of the International Wine and Spirits Competition 
to win best of show with two different grape varieties in the same year. Wow. And that was the Chardonnay and a Pinot Noir. And they were entered against about over a thousand wines from throughout the world. And wow. they came out on top. It was 80 Chardonnay and, uh, I mean, excuse me, 80 Pinot Noir and 81 Chardonnay. Um, the, uh, the, you've probably heard about the steamboat mm -hmm. Pinot Noir thing. Mm -hmm. That was the first wine that I took to the steamboat was in 81 I went the first time and I took the 80 Pinot Noir. Yeah. It got a lot of hems and haws but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway but it did finally come around. That was one that was probably our biggest winemaking problem was and I've thought about this a, a million times um, is that when the wines first come out you know, everybody puts out their Pinot Noir about two years, mm -hmm. okay? We, we were good, but nah, not with the best, you know. But five years later, we'd kick everybody's butt. And this has got proven so many times. Uh, there's a enological group in, in Vancouver that meet once a month, and, and they, when they, um, 83s came out, which the 83s were nice ones. Mm -hmm. um, they bought a case each of 10 different wineries. And we're talking the top group of wineries. And they included a case of our wine. And uh, so then 10 years later, in 93, <clears throat> they did a tasting of those wines. And uh, they called me and asked if I would uh, be the moderator of the tasting. And I said, okay. So we tasted them. And we actually didn't tell people the individual wines. We just told them the, what the group of wines were, who the brand were. But they didn't know the individual ones. That we wanted them to vote for their favorite wine. And we didn't want names to influence them particularly. Mm -hmm. but we did feel it was fair to tell them what wines were there. Yeah. Sure. Twelve and came out first. And I mean, we're talking uh, Ken Wright wines, we're talking Irie wines, and, uh, and we were kind of nowhere with those wines when they came out at the same time. But that was a winemaking problem that we had. And, um, and the, we didn't get a lot of that overripe grape taste in the wines, you know, like Ken Wright has in his, you know, that very concentrated. Mm -hmm. We were more into the pure fruit characteristics. Well, our wines were so intensely fruity that they tasted young when they were getting older, you know, and you had to wait for that to come around and, and become complex and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that was always a problem. But, but I guess that it was partly my fault because I never cared for all those jammy fruit bombs, you know. But I like the fresh you know, quality of the wines. These uh, wines that we're making now, uh, that I'm making up at Twelton, the 13 and the 14, um, it, it's been a difficult project in some ways because, you know, the winery has its 
own problems than demands on his staff and whatnot, you know. So then I'm kind of interjected into that mix. Well, they don't always have people to send up to Twelfth and to do something that I want done up there. And so it's almost a step above home winemaking, it seems like, you know. <laughs> and then uh, things don't happen when I want them to happen and whatnot always. And But the wines have turned out pretty good, actually. Uh, the first wine they've released is a 12, which I didn't make the base wines, but I blended them. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that they're selling now. And uh, it, with my name on the label and whatnot. And so they're gonna release the 13 uh, soon, in September, I think. Uh, but, um, but the wine's theirs, they do with it what they want. I have no control over that. I just struggle with the winemaking parts. <laughs> do you, and you've talked, you kind of talked a little bit about this, but do you have a winemaking philosophy? Well, I, I guess that, that it's kind of incorporated a little bit in what we were just talking mm -hmm. about is that my philosophy is to make the wine taste like the fruit and get, make, derive its flavors from the fruit and not from manipulation particularly. And so I've always made wine pretty basic. And, and uh, you know, there's all this talk about organic and natural and this and that. Well, without even promoting that aspect, I've always made wine that way. And uh, that, uh, you know, things are done sort of like they were historically done. Mm -hmm. you know, the, and, um, done a few modifications on some of the wines. One of my favorite wines, personally, is Gewurztraminer. And uh, Gewurztraminer is, of course, a tough sell. It's not very popular. You can't say it. It's hard to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that uh, Chardonnay flows off your tongue and <laughs> Gewurztraminer doesn't. You know? the, um, but uh, we planted we, I don't know, we had about 11 acres, I guess, of Gewurztraminer at Tualatin. And uh, Willamette's just now taking them out because they don't have a label anymore with Gewurztraminer. And, um, but, um, so I kept doing this and doing that, and I spent, I don't know, several trips to Alsace, but I couldn't go at harvest time because that's when I was working. Yeah. So um, finally, when Willamette acquired uh, Tualatin, uh, I went to work for them. And uh, so my initial uh, job was the, I worked as managing sales for them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, old winemakers don't die, they just become salesmen. You know? <laughs> um, but, um, so finally I went to Don Voorhees, who was Jim Bruno's partner, and Jim was off in the brewery thing at that time. And I said to him, yeah, uh, fire me. And he says, Bill, I don't have any reason to fire you. And I said, oh, yes, you do. I want to go to Europe, but I also want to collect unemployment. <laughs> and, uh, and so I can't collect unemployment if I quit. 
but if so in case sent me a letter saying that they no longer needed my services so, <laughs> so I applied for unemployment and the next day I left for Europe you know? but uh, and so I went right to Alsace and there was a, a there's a woman who actually grew up here in McMinnville was married to a winemaker there and a, have their family has a winery the guy does mm -hmm. and actually Erath introduced me to them so that's how I met them and um, so um, the she made arrangements uh, for us to rent uh, a house in their village in Alsace and Hunover and so I stayed a week there and sort of shadowed her husband mm -hmm. much of the time and came to the conclusion they were doing nothing different than I was it had to be the grapes you know? <laughs> but uh, I couldn't do anything about that yeah. but I was making the wine just like they were in fact I it was patterned after many trips going to Alsace and, and seeing what they were doing I was doing the the same. We sold quite a bit of Gewurz. We sold 2,000 cases a year, which is a lot for a small winery. Mm -hmm. And uh, but um, it it, uh, it had no future though, you know, really. So you've talked about some of the highlights of your winemaking career, um, but we also heard that you were presented an award by the Queen for one of your wines. Do you have? Can you tell us about that? Well, that was the Wine and Spirits Award. Okay. The, the two uh, things, and actually, I didn't go personally. Bill Malkmus went. I was a little bruised over that one. I thought because he took a bunch of his friends there, and he told me that I couldn't go. Mm. It was at harvest time. And I thought, well, I could have gone for a day or two. <laughs> so, but anyway, no, it didn't happen. But uh, yeah, the Queen. And actually, we, by winning two best of shows, we got these handmade uh, decanters. And the decanter that I got was the Robert Mondavia uh, sponsored one. Yeah. And, uh, and then built. Fortunately, we got two decanters because then he <laughs> took one and I took one. You know. But uh, the uh, I was thinking that, uh, that Jim Bruno was miffed at first when he got twelfth that he didn't get the decanter. You know. <laughs> uh, but that was okay. Yeah, he, he got over it. Um, but um, the, I keep thinking seriously about my wife. You know. With uh, talking about, you know, there's there's some memorabilia still that we have the the trophy, the decanter, and I keep thinking that uh, that maybe it would be right for uh, Willamette to have it in their trophy case in their tasting room, you know, so, so more people can see it than sitting on my dining room, you know, but. Uh, my wife said, well, don't do it yet, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> so then I got to thinking that I don't have contact with Malcolm's uh, previous family, but I think Virginia does, my ex-wife, and I keep thinking of talking to her about it. Why not track down that decanter and see where it went? Because maybe it's just thrown away somewhere. I don't know where it is. 
and because the his family didn't have a lot of interest in the winery at all and um then maybe we could get that one back and and use it but i don't know if that will happen or not but, but that was probably the biggest award that we got but the, you know, the, the wine spectator, intellectually so dishonest, you know, they, so we sent them a note. We said, you know, we didn't see anything about the award in, in London, except, well, you know, it's the narrow little column thing about a half inch long or so. And they said, well, you know, that we have an editorial policy that we don't publish a lot about wineries that are not available in our market area. Okay, next issue. Five pages of some obscure Italian wine you couldn't find in any of their market <laughs> area, I'm sure. You know, I think it all boils down to money. You know, somebody pays, somebody gets, you know. We didn't pay, we didn't get, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, but anyway. You know, it's like wineries, like wine shops that they only want uh, wines of Parker over 90 or something, mm -hmm. you know. That's, that's one person's opinion. And I tasted two years in a row now, in the last two years. Willamette's had me come and taste when the Parker person tasted. There's been a different person the last three years doing the Oregon issue. Plus, this last guy, I don't think that he was a wine person. I think music was his expertise. <laughs> And you know he was pretty hard on Oregon in the issue, and uh, I, you know, I think that it, uh, uh, that whole thing has run its life. Personally, you talk about my California career. Everyone thinks that Marvin Schenken created the Wine Spectator. Mm -hmm. You know that would be most people's opinion, I'm sure. No, there was a guy named Morrison in San Diego that published the first Wine Spectator. And he sold it then to Schenken. Because hmm. I met this guy in San Diego. I was at his house where, and he printed it in his garage. You know, and it was just a little one long kind of operation. And that was, and his, then he had owned that name, the Wine Spectator. And he sold that name to Schenken. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that, I'm sure. No. Because yeah, you don't see that anywhere. Yeah. So you talked about um, that you're back working at Tualatin now. I know you have other current projects you're working on. Can you talk a little bit about other things you're doing at the moment? I know you're still wearing a McMiniman shirt today, for example. Oh, well, you know, everybody in their career, when they get to my age, I guess, has a job that was sort of stands out in their mind as something unbelievable. I worked for McMenamins over a year. And uh, so what had happened was I got a call uh, from their, you know, they, uh, you know, there's Mike and Brian, you know, that they're the owners of the company. But they have two guys under them. One does the hotels and the, and the restaurants. The other one does all the pubs and those things. Okay. So the guy, the restaurant guy calls me. Because apparently Mike had talked to him about a project, you know. And, and so he called me. And he said that uh, we understand that 
you might be interested in, in uh, a part-time job. I said, what do you have in mind? And he said, well, we think that we could sell more wine in our restaurants if our wine staffs were better trained. You know, would this have some appeal to you? And I said, yeah, let's, well, why don't you meet with us? So I met with uh, Mike and DJ, the guy's name, and myself. And so they wanted me to work up a program that I could go to the place and make the presentation. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I worked up the program, printed it up, showed it to them. They liked it. So they gave me a list, their priority list of places to go. And the phone number and the manager's name, call them up, make arrangements, you know, and whatnot. So then I told DJ, I said, you know, I think that I would like to go to dinner at a couple of the restaurants where people don't know me and let me just get a feeling for where we are at. Yeah. So I did the Oregon Hotel here. Mm -hmm. And I did the Kennedy School in Portland. Well, here, they didn't even have a corkscrew. <laughs> in fact, they found a corkscrew in some, one of the, the women that worked there had it in her purse, one of those kind you pull the handle out and shove it through, you know, the, the throwaway ones. That was the corkscrew. So then it was a little bit better at Kennedy School, but not much. Because what they did was somebody in the back screwed the corkscrew into the cork, and then they brought it out to the table and they took, you know, <laughs> to pull the cork out. So I, I went back and met with uh, DJ. I said, you know, DJ, no problem. We've got nowhere to go but up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, and so then I started. But just think of this job now. I make a phone call, set a date. I show up at that date. I give them two hours of bullshit, and I leave. And I'm responsible for nothing. I'm responsible to nobody. I'm all on my own. I mean, what better job could you ask for than that? And I get paid to do it. You know? And you probably get to drink some wine while you're there. And I there get too. to drink some wine while I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, uh, it was it was really a great job. Then unfortunately, my current wife, uh, she's a software specialist, and she's sort of the national expert on a particular kind of software called Timberline Software. It's an accounting package thing. Okay. Well, she, they needed her in Florida. And so I had to quit because she can make so much more money than I could. <laughs> that, uh, so I uh, uh, quit the McMenamin's job and we moved to South Florida for two years to Flo Fort Lauderdale. And, uh, but uh, it was just the Great job. It was the kind of job I wish I had when I was 20. <laughs> Everybody wishes they had that job. Yeah, right. 20. Yeah, instead of 70. But anyway, yeah. the, uh, but, well, you can maybe get the feeling from listening to me talk about I've had an exciting life. I could have made a lot more money doing something else, I'm sure. But the point is, I wouldn't have had the life that I have. I was hired as a mathematician 
by the uh, Livermore Lawrence Radiation Lab. Uh, I would have been on computers on the ground floor uh, in 1958, but uh, decided not to do that. But, uh, you know, so I don't know. I'm curious, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, yeah. um, with the, the, the camaraderie in the wine industry, but also the competition at the same time, and the kind of, like you said, the kind of budding heads between different AVAs at certain points, they're kind of, you know, the, the, how did that, how was the balance struck to make the industry work as a whole? Well, I, I think that um, the first, when we first had wine to sell, okay, now we have wine to sell. Um, Let killed us in the Portland market. I couldn't sell wine to anybody. And the reason, his statement was that we bought grapes from Washington. We didn't make wine from Oregon grapes. There were no Oregon grapes to have. There were none, you know, and our vineyard wasn't producing yet. So we bought uh, grapes from Eastern Washington. Well, anyway, um, so my first market really was Eugene and Corvallis and along the coast. And you know, a typical day to sell wine, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning, with wine that I'd sold on a previous trip in the car, because you can't deliver, you can't sell out of your car. That's illegal. But I could put, I could deliver and sell at the same time. So I'd put the wine in the car I needed for delivery. I'd take off, and there was a place in Astoria the bakery, home bakery, and I, they were open at six in the morning. So I could have a donut and coffee and make my delivery and sell them some more wine for my next delivery time. And I'd start there and I'd end up in, in uh, uh, Newport at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. That would be, and then drive back home. Um, and, and so distributors didn't want you they're not going to spend any time trying to sell your product. Then. Sure. So then I went to Safeway. I went every three weeks to Safeway. And Safeway at that time was downtown on, off of Water Street there. Well, that was the year they were building the Clackamas warehouse that they have. And I went for nine months every three weeks. And then on that ninth month, the wine buyer says, we've decided to take your wine. We want six bottle packs, 75 of them. And we want them delivered at Clackamas in three weeks or whatever it was. Their mm -hmm. warehouse was just ready to open. So I went home and got my kids lined up and they started making six bottle boxes, you know, because we didn't have any. So we cut other boxes and, and then tape an end on them, you know, and, and put them in. So anyway, so then I delivered in the warehouse. I came back, I went down to Safeway and I said, you know that you've got the wine now, but I said, the 76 packs, that's not all the stores you have. Yeah, and I said, you must, I must be in only one type of store or something. And they said, yeah, you're in the A stores. Oh, okay. And uh, I said, well, do you have a list of them? Yes. Okay, may I have the list? Yes. 
So I got the list. So now I was down, uh, actually it was a uh, uh, lobbying project I was on down in Salem. And, to, and then I was, was noticed on the list that said on South Commercial there's a Safeway. So I go down there, pull into the Safeway store, ask for the manager, give him my card, my song and dance. And, and he said, well, just a minute. He said that my assistant takes care of the wine shelves. I said, is this your assistant here? Yes, my assistant is here. May I talk to him? Yes. So the assistant comes out and talk to him. And he says, yeah, we've got your wine. It's in the back room. I'm waiting for the gallo salesman to tell me where to put it on the shelf. Uh, and uh, I said, oh. But I said, you know, I don't think it sells very well back there. You know? and so, so that was my introduction to supermarket selling. Uh, I had not done that before. Then uh, that, uh, they, you know, in those days, Gallo controlled the, all the Safeway shelves because Johnny Lemma uh, was a, a buddy of uh, Al Giusti, who was a buddy of the wine buyer for Safeway. And uh, it was just an old boys group. Sure. Uh, and, but, uh, but I was the first Oregon grape winery in Safeway. No one else. Honeywood was there with one or two facings of berry wines, but I was the only one, the first one with grape wines. Uh, and that uh, uh, real struggle. Then eventually I did get into the Portland market. And one of my early selling things was to uh, Weiser and uh, Gene Weiser down in Lake Oswego. And so I go there tell him about the wines, he orders a case of each. We had two wines we were selling. So I said, okay, I'll deliver them next Wednesday or whatever day was. But So I show up, I set the wine down in the wine department, and you know, you have to get paid by law, you, there's no credit. So I'd go upstairs to see Gene Weiser and get paid. <laughs> so I went up there and uh, I said, uh, uh, Gene, um, where would you like the wine? What? He says, well, mark it and put it on the shelf. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, what do you mean, mark it and put it on the shelf? I said, you know, I drove my car out to Pasco at 4 o'clock in the morning. I picked up a U-Haul van. I went out to the vineyard where the grapes were picked in boxes. I loaded the boxes in the van. I drove back to the winery. I spent two days crushing the grapes and pressing. I had a basket press that I cranked, click, click, you know. Pressed 14 tons that way, the first year. And I drove the boxes back to the vineyard, returned the U-Haul, got my car, and came back. And now you want me to mark it and put it on the shelf? And he looked at it and he starts laughing. He says, that is kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, it is funny, you know? It, it, he said, just leave them on the floor. <laughs> and I got paid and I laughed, you know? But you know, that didn't put it in some perspective, you know? <laughs> But, uh, you know, look at these guys today. They've all got money, they got warehouses, they call somebody up and gets delivered, and they have no idea what it was like when we started. You know, it was not easy.
on that note, where do you see the Oregon wine industry going? Where is the wine industry going? Where's it going to go from here? Well, part of me says one thing, but the reality of things is different. Yeah, and I, I, I have trouble seeing the industry to continue to grow and whatnot at the prices the wines are. Yeah, but. I'm a dinosaur. I'm left over from a generation when you were lucky to get five bucks a bottle, you know? Um, and so it's really difficult uh, to uh, see. And, and I guess it's tied into the economy of the country and, and whatnot. But as long as the market holds at the prices that they're at, and, and there seems to be some uh, no particular barrier or limit you know? you know some people will fall to the from the wayside I'm sure they'll have to either lower prices or do something else yeah but you know we always used to think of the old pyramid as the price went up the base got smaller mm -hmm. you know but eventually there's a place where there's a bottle that only one person will buy you know and that probably is still the story but it's just that the economics have widened the base, you know, with time. Um, but I still think my original uh, concept that selling the wine away from Oregon is where the future is. You know, now, you know, how you grow that and make money and, and whatnot, I don't know exactly. I was surprised when I learned recently that A to Z is the largest winery in the state. They're the biggest selling wine in the state. I didn't know that. Um, and the only reason I know is because Don, the winemaker at Willamette, quit Willamette two weeks ago and went to work at A to Z as their red winemaker. <laughs> and uh, he said that A and Z was the largest one. I didn't know that. 300,000 cases. Wow. Uh, um, but uh, I. I think back sometimes to when I worked at Italian Swiss Colony, we would crush five to 7,000 tons a day. And the red grapes were Zinfandel, Petite Syrah, and Carignan. Yeah. And now it's probably all Cabernet, you know, or Merlot and Cabernet or something. But, but uh, so, you know, that you hope that the industry survives and survives economically. That, you know, there are a lot of people who put a lot of energy into it, and I'm one of those. So. And uh, that you'd like to see that succeed. Um, that I, I assume you've uh, talked to Kevin Chambers? He's on the list. Oh, because he was. Uh, a really good person and great person to talk to and has a real pulse of things that I think of Kevin is I first sold him wine in Eugene he was a he was a clerk at a wine shop then the next time he prophesied he shows up he's a part-time wine writer then he shows up a sales manager at Benoit's then he shows up as uh, in charge of Willamette 
the winery in Salem, <laughs> and I'm interfacing with him at all, along the way. You know, and I saw him at IPNC uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, and uh, and I have very strong opinions that you have heard a few. You know, that, uh, we appreciate that. We we have a lot of people who don't like giving us many strong opinions. We appreciate hearing strong opinions. Yeah. Well, the thing of it is that um, how do you really understand? the person if they don't really open themselves up to you and and you know you're saving something for posterity and this will give a message to people from now and you know the same old milk toast reaction doesn't give any information particularly then uh, and, and that people can see some of the statements that i made that they don't like well so what yeah, that, uh, and during my days with the industry, a lot of people didn't like me because I was pretty forceful and strong on my feelings and what the industry should do and shouldn't do, and uh, not everyone agreed. Anyway, what else? Is, well, that was all the questions I have. Is there anything we didn't talk about or anything I didn't ask that I should have? Or that Camille didn't ask that she should have? The, uh, one of the things that, that I don't know if you touched upon it, that, that was an important thing to the industry, uh, it was to all of us kind of personally, um, was the Enological Society in Seattle. I don't know if anyone talked much about that. Uh, it was a competition, and it was just Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, British Columbia wines. And it started in 76, because I was involved in the startup. And it was, it was sort of a high point of our year in many ways. And, and then it became not only, you know, the awards that were given out were important to everybody. You know, that uh, you, you made a big deal about it if you got a gold medal there. Because they usually had good judges, well run. And then it became a social thing for all of us. Uh, you know, the uh, Erath, Ponzi's, Volstek's, uh, Virginia and I and our kids, and we'd all go up on there. And then on Saturday, uh, we would uh, go down to the, the uh, boathouse at UW. You know, there's a boathouse down by the stadium. We'd go down there and rent canoes and go across to the Arboretum. And then we would, you know, ground the boats and have a big blast and, you know, a big picnic and potluck thing. And we did that every year. And, and then we'd attend the, the event. And uh, so one time, it brings back a memory that we, after the event, we would go across the street to FX Macquarie's, you know, across from Seattle Center there. And, um, and just trade lies and horror stories and have a drink. And so we're, I'm sitting in there, I forget who I was with, and Ponzi comes in the door and he yells, Fuller, are you here? And I said, yeah. He said, there's a policeman out there looking for you. <laughs> you know? I said, what do you mean a policeman out there looking for you? He says, go out there and see him, he's asking for you. And we told him we thought you were in here. 
Okay, so I go out there. Well, what had happened was I was staying with Joel and Karen Klein. I don't know if you know the name Joel Klein. He was the first winemaker at St. Michelle. Um, and well, his wife was my major professor's daughter. So I've known her since she was a teenager. And, uh, and, and Joel was a salesman for GAF. And my thesis had to do with the GAF product and treatment of white wines. So I knew him for a long time. Well, anyway, so they're sitting in the police car and the policeman says to me, do you know this couple? And I said, yeah, I know them. I'm staying at their house. Oh, do you know where their car is? I said, yeah, I know where their car is. Well, what had happened was Karen, Joel's wife, had driven us in because he had to come in earlier for something. And she drove us into town and parked the car, and she'd forgotten where she'd parked the car. And they couldn't find it. And I thought, Jesus, you know, this guy should be throwing us all in jail, not worrying about where a car's parked. You know? <laughs> so I got in the police car, and we went over there, and I said, there's their car. You know? uh, anyway, it was kind of funny. Uh, but. Uh, just little things like that you think about occasionally yeah. uh, that uh, happen, but yeah. But you know, some of the things that we did uh, with Fred Delkin, you know, uh, through the Wine Advisory Board, uh, in one of our first uh, big uh, events was um, in Seattle at the Aquarium. That was very successful. So then the next year, you know that the tallest building of the Columbia Tower? Mm -hmm. Well, as they were finishing the building, there was a room at, near the top. I, I don't think it was the top one, maybe the second one down. Um, that was not finished, but available. You could rent it and hold an event there. And so we did. And we promoted as last year we took you under the water. This year we're taking you to the top of town. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and and again, that was uh, quite success. Everyone wanted to see this building anyway, and what it was like from the top floor. Yeah, and uh, so we did uh, that, and we did some East Coast stuff. We did some uh, New York tasting and and whatnot. You know that, and much of this. Uh, was uh, you know oriented toward shops and restaurants and whatnot, but we still were looking for distributors. A lot of us, and we would use this opportunity to find uh, distribution uh, with, and uh, that that worked well. We uh, did a San Francisco one, and uh, that was good. So anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and all your stories and opinions and facts and lies and everything else. There we appreciate go. it. Yeah, yeah, we'll it's go ahead uh, it's go lies and horror stories. <laughs> you know? I like it. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. 
The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.